first reading from the Old Covenant is Hosea, chapter 1, and then I'll skip to chapter 3. And then we'll turn to Romans 5 for the sermon text. But first, Hosea, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no I, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Turn to chapter 3 of Hosea, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, Children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Turn to the reading of God's word. Now turn to Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Here ends the reading of God's word from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Well, the topic for this evening is love. And the topic of love is not a description of love's characteristics. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 13 for that description. And it's also not a description of emotional love between a man and a woman, which I dare say you find in the of songs in the Old Testament, passion between two believers. Paul is in this, verses 6 and 7, answering a possible doubt that someone in the church in Rome might have about God's love. What kind of love is it? Paul has just, in this passage, said, church in Rome and to us, that God's love has been poured into our hearts. And this is an experience of God's love. It gives the strength to endure suffering. It gives the strength to have character from that suffering. It gives the, the strength and inspiration to have hope for a better day, a day in heaven most likely. So that's an experience that a believer can have. It's an emotional and an intellectual experience. You have that experience. It's not the same as falling in love, where a man and a woman look at each other and say, wow, and you know, certain things happen, hormones go, and teenagers get married, or 20-year-olds get married, or 30, whatever. You get married because you're attracted to that other person, and it's mutual, and so you make a commitment till death do you part. That's not what this is about. How do you know God's love that you've begun to experience is reliable and trustworthy and faithful, all those good things. How do you know whether or not God might change his mind and not love you anymore at some future date? And here's another thought. It's not in this passage, but if you could, how could you put God's love to the test? The test, the thing that would make you absolutely certain God loves you and he's going to always love you. 
We might test other people as we're courting or dating, or we might test their love or their affection for us and so forth in some ways, you know, not sinful ways, but we might say, you know, I saw him or her do that, and that's, I don't know, forget about him. I'm, she, he's not a candidate or she's not a candidate for marriage. You know, what kind of test might you think of, or as you observe somebody that you're thinking about marrying, what might you look at them and start to say, well, here's my checklist. No, they failed that one. He's not kind, or whatever. Paul is teaching here that God's love has already been put to the test. He reminds us of God's love for the weak, the ungodly, in other words, sinners. Paul has already explained suffering, endurance, and character, and hope that come out of the the, the Spirit working in us and helping us get through these things in this life. And Paul has already explained that God's love is something that Christians should have already experienced. You felt the love. You intellectually know this is true. But the experience of being loved in any human relationship, in any relationship, is fragile at times. I doubt that anybody in this room, don't raise your hand if you're the exception, has ever felt and experienced love from day one to now without any bumps in the road from any human being, mother, father, husband, wife, children, you name it. There's always times when you go, ah. And then people move away or they die. So their love is gone because they're dead or they've moved away. So there's three questions I want to ask of this test because I think Paul is implying these questions as he answers them. What, number one, what did God do to show his love? What's the test? For whom did God do this? And when? When was it God did this? First, what did God do to show what kind of love he gives you? He answers in verses six and eight, God's love there contrasted with human love. Human love. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for us. So the comparison is Christ died for someone like that. Would you die for someone like that? People can show love by doing something for you. I'm not going to offer this, but if you needed some money, we happen to have a certain amount of money in the bank in in our checking account. If you needed X number of dollars, I might be able to give you that money. Don't line up and ask me for that. But that is a way of showing I care about you. I give you something of mine. If you needed a word of encouragement and I heard your situation, I might be able to say something just like, oh, that's... You're a great person. You're going to get over this. I might say something that you know in your heart, but I can repeat to you. And by my saying it with my emotional relationship with you, you would go, thank God my pastor said a kind word to me today. I can go out of here and go to the office tomorrow morning or whatever with some some zeal or some confidence. You probably also realize that sometimes love has its limits and should maybe have its limits. If you're a parent of a drug addict, you know those kinds of things. 
or if you've had an alcoholic in your family, you know there are limits to being good to somebody like that. You cannot wisely give them money just because they're homeless. And the question might be, do you know anyone who would really die for you? Here's, here's the test. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So Paul is acknowledging that in human relationships, whatever that relationship is, there are some people who would really die for a good person. They'd deliberately, knowingly, give up their life in order to have that person have more life. Save them from war or save them from whatever. You know, emergency people, go firemen, you know, EMTs, all these people get into situations that are life-threatening for them to save a stranger sometimes. Now contrast the limits of human love with God's love. First, we know this. This is truth that we know. God in the person of his son died for us. Sent his son to die for us. That was his mission, to die on the cross. So God's love has paid the the greatest price that another person could pay. Life. A life was given up for you. So what did God do to show what kind of love he gives you? He gave up the life of his beloved son for you. That's a historic fact. Second question is, for whom did God's son die? The greatest price paid for you, I'm going to say this carefully, does not mean that you were a beautiful, wonderful, extraordinarily godly human being when this happened. Verse 7, for a righteous man or a good man, someone might die in a human relationship. I doubt if someone in this room would say, well, if I lived in Nazi Germany, I would certainly die to save Adolf Hitler from whatever. Wicked man. Verses 6 and 8, Christ died not for a good man or men, but Christ died for the ungodly, for us while we were sinners. How extraordinarily different is God's love compared to our love? I hope I'd lay down my life for my daughter, my son, either one of my daughters, my wife, given the opportunity, burning building, I'd go in to try to drag them out or whatever. I hope I would do that. But for, I don't know, I might not do it for some stranger who's done me dirty. And I may sympathize with other sinners, and you may sympathize with other sinners. But God's love is not simply that he sympathizes with us. God does not overlook the evil person that you were before Christ gave you the second birth. Despite our having sin in common with others, we don't naturally love evil people. Do we? 
God loved us while we were worthless, evil sinners. Would you die for... Uh, I could pick a politician, but I won't go there. But Putin, would you die for Adolf Hitler in history? Would you die for Saddam Hussein when he was still alive? You know, pick your pick a wicked, wicked, wicked man. Somebody who's maybe oh, somebody who's been um, putting people to death. A nurse who's been putting people to death over and over and over again. He or she's been doing it deliberately, acknowledging, acknowledging that she enjoys or he enjoyed putting weak people in the hospital to death. Would you lay down your life for that person? You know, you might lay down your life for a good person, someone who is, in some sense, worth it. But in God's eyes, we're all sinners, and every sin deserves God's wrath and condemnation. So we admit we're all sinners. We admit that we should be sent to hell, that we're as bad as a murderer, we're as bad as Hitler, Hussein, a mass murderer, and before you had the second birth, you were a hard-hearted sinner, you may have faked it going to church, but it wasn't real, you were hard-hearted towards God, yet God loved you when you were a hard-hearted sinner, rebellious in thought and desires, dead, spiritually dead. God, though he is pure, holy, 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 and righteous, does love and has loved worthless sinners. For whom did God's son die? Ungodly sinners. That's us. Third, when did Jesus die for you? What kind of person were you? When Jesus died, the answer is, we just said this, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were spiritually dead, desperately weak, hopeless, helpless in this world, we had nothing to offer God in any way. We didn't take any baby steps towards God. God loved us when we could do nothing good for him or anyone in a deep sense. We couldn't even do real good for ourselves. We were blind. We were deaf. We were dumb to spiritual realities. And we were immoral. God saw your helpless, hopeless, sinful, hard-heartedness. And at that time, Christ died for you. And at that time, the Holy Spirit applied the death of Christ to you to give you the trust and the knowledge that God really does love sinners like you. There is nothing attractive in us or great in us that prompted God to say, I'll pick her, I'll pick him, and so on. So what's the basis for your hope for the life to come? That God won't change his mind. Oh, you've just done the wicked thing. You're out of my house. I'm I'm turning my back on you. Go away. The basis for your hope is God's love that's described here And it is the nature, the character of God's love that Paul describes here. It's not yourself. It's not your pastor. It's not your being a Presbyterian or Reformed or having the right doctrine. 
It is God's love for you. This kind of love from God. There is, I'm going to say this, and you say, well, but I'm, no, don't, don't doubt what I'm about. No human being has ever given you the kind of love God has for you. It's 100% pure, and it is 100% trustworthy, 100% reliable, and it is 100% forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You may think at times, as probably some people do, as I do, God must love me because I gave a great sermon in North Andover this evening. No, he loves me because he loves me. I could do a crappy sermon and he still loves me. I don't hope to do that, but that's the point. My performance doesn't make God love me more or less. He has absolutely proven his reliable love for me when I was an atheist, agnostic, a real nasty guy, and pride and arrogant, and all those things. And the same for you. So if he loved you then, and now you have the Spirit in you, and you are becoming more Christ like, but doesn't he love you more? No, he can't possibly love you anymore. There's nothing he could say to you or do for you than he's already done. And Paul is pointing to that as your confidence. You can't undo the love of God. When you've done something wrong, brothers and sisters, should feel shame. You should feel guilt for real sin, not just somebody else's opinion. You've offended God. You've grieved your Heavenly Father. But He loves you. And He will never stop loving you. Because when you were completely 100% dead and hard-hearted, He made you alive. No one, I dare say, would die for a wicked sinner except the Son of God. Knowledge that that is the kind of love God has for you and has shown in history should strengthen you. You can bear the sufferings of this present age. You can, you can go through deep waters while knowing this. God still He'll never change. And God's love is far more reliable and trustworthy than any human relationship. No matter how trustworthy your spouse or your children or you know, your pastor is or whatever, your best friend, he or she is not like God. So what are the applications from this part of Romans? I'll give you one very simple one. Think clearly about your life and about God's love. Don't pretend you were a nice, wonderful person when you were given the gift of faith. And your sin does not disqualify you now from being loved eternally by God. Not this God. Why? This God sent his son to die for ungodly Sinners, weak sinners. And you can trust that that God will not reject you because he's already started to love you. And his love 
for now and for the future, no matter how weak you might be in the future, or other human beings may abandon you and betray you, pastors, churches reject you or hurt you, but every believer who has childlike faith in Jesus' work on the cross will be loved and loved and loved and loved. Therefore, you can peacefully, joyfully, hopefully rest in God's love and be comforted by God's love as you think about your life alongside what God's love is really like. I can, I, I'm going to be like a prophet now. I'm going to predict your future. God will never change his love for you. That's the future I predict for you if you have faith in Jesus. If you have experienced what Paul is talking about, the love of God poured into your heart, that's a very wonderful experience. and Every believer should have that. We should grow in that as we study Scripture, understand the work of Christ and all the things that God is doing. But you might have doubts. God knows how to restore a sinner who's doubting. That's what Paul is doing here. So don't look at yourself so much as look at God's love. He sees your sin, and he still loves you. He's already committed himself to you. Consider this. Your hope and your trust Ultimately, not that you're loved by your mother or your father, your spouse, your friends, family. You're not loved in the way you really, really need to be loved by any of them. But God's love, God's love is pure, stronger, more reliable, more trustworthy, is dramatically different and better than any human Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God is trying to convince God's people that he forgives sinners that turn to him. and He he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm going to steal from that this way. God says to you tonight, My love is not your love. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so is my love higher than your love. May you rest in that love tonight and forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that your love is supreme. That if we rest in your love, because it is the kind that Paul describes here, we will be stronger Christians. We will be able to endure the unendurable. We will be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we will be able to weep with those who weep, which are character traits of you and your son who wept over Jerusalem, who wept over the death of Lazarus, who said there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who do not need to repent. Oh, Father, 
May we start to understand your heart and the heart of your Son and the Spirit's work. May that Spirit be with us to encourage us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.